Well, Father, I pray that today through your word and by your spirit, you would heal that which feels misplaced and broken. You would expand our imaginations to comprehend the immense measure of your goodness to us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the most common lies we can struggle with is that God is keeping a list of wrongs, that there is some celestial balance sheet in the heavenlies where God is keeping track of stuff we do that's not so good and the stuff we do that might be okay. But that leaves us in quite unsure standings. Is God just generally frustrated with us? Sure, he, he loves us, but that's kind of a divine duty. It's not like he's really fond of us, is he? <laughs> what do I have to do to get in good with God? It is a common temptation to get the cart before the, har- the horse in seeking security in our relationship with God. We put second things first, and it leads us in quite an unsure, precarious situation. When we feel like we're doing well in life, we've not been argumentative, we've been patient, we've been sp- you may even spend some time praying most mornings or generally managing life well, well then we're in, we're in good with God. But if we haven't been doing those things very well, then this certain fear begins to well up within us and almost certainly I'll get a flat tire on the way to work because God is not happy. It just leaves us unsure, not quite knowing where we stand with him. And frankly, it's exhausting. It's easier just to hold God at arm's length because trying to sort this all out leaves us in a sense of not knowing what is up and what is down. This is exactly the opposite of what God desires for us. It takes reality and it turns it on its head. This lining of thinking gets two sides of our relationship with God backwards. I talk about these two sides of our relationship with these two words. The first is our position. Our position has to do with our eternal standing with God. Are we in? Are we out? Are we good with him? Are we not good with him? How do you get in a good position with God? The other side of our relationship with God is our practice, our attitudes, our motivations, our actions, how we relate to him and how we relate to each other. So position and practice. Which comes first? Does practice, our actions, impact our position? Or is it our position that comes first and allows us to then act a certain way? We get these backwards and it leads us into trouble. Ephesians 1 sounds out a clarion call that the message is clear that we do not earn our position before God and it's our position that impacts our practice. And it's in fact that our position is not earned but it is received. We find that God has done all that he can do to ensure that we have a good standing before him and we do that by our relationship with him. As we will see in Ephesians 1, it is God who determines, who determines to make us his own, and he's done all that he needs to do to do that. He has secured us, and we are secure in him. It's not how we live that impacts our position with him. It's the other way around. Now, this is true if we think of this from a familial angle, using terms like father and children, or if we use it from a legal orientation, using terms of guilt and judgment and forgiveness and redemption. Ephesians 1 reminds us that this is not a barter and trade scenario. It's all grace. We are immersed in a reality of grace. It is a gift. 
Our position before God is not won, it is received. Now, Ken spoke of this last week in terms of our identity. God makes us his. Whose we are is so important. We are are the fathers. We belong to Jesus. He has won us at great personal cost. And one of the greatest hindrances to our ongoing maturity as adults, and this goes for all aspects of our life, relationally, professionally, emotionally, one of the greatest hindrances to us moving on in maturity is a malformed, misinformed, wrongly sourced identity. If our identity is wound up in our performance and what other people think of us, if that is how I find my sense of security, then there is no way that I can love you. I will use you because I need you to reassure me. I need your love and your affirmation to give me a sense of security. And that will leave me malformed and unable to truly relate well to other people. So Ken said last week that we don't decide our identity based on life experiences. We receive our identity. Identity requires community and family. Identity is something that's not that we decide on our own, but it is given to us and we receive it. Before anyone named you, before anybody loved you, cursed you, blessed you, did harm to you, before anybody did anything in your life for good or for ill, you are already named and loved and desired by a father. And his word to you, because of that, is supreme over all other words to you. His word to you, his identity, whose you are, is what orients us. Because love is not earned, it is gifted and received. When I yield myself to my Father in heaven and receive his affection for me, all his love washed over me, allow him to determine who I am. I am on the path of becoming a more mature adult, and I'm free to love other people because freely we receive and freely we give. This is simply a step of faith, as Ephesians 1 is going to explain to us. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 if you have your Bible or a phone or whatever you brought with you today. We're going to pick up the conversation, the passage in verse 11. What we're going to find that God has secured us, and we're secure in him. God has secured the church, a gathering of people, and he's also secured each one of us individually. So read with me, starting in verse 11. Paul says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, as usual for Paul, he has these long rambling sentences and he packs so many concepts into such a short amount of time. We've got to, got to pull it apart and sort out what he's saying. And the first thing we bump into are these intimidating words of chosen and predestined. These words can kind of freak us out. They don't know where exactly where they leave us. It's so important to see the context in which it's written and the tone in which Paul uses these words. He first uses them up in verse 4. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption. 
Love is God's posture. Paul's intention for the use of these words is to be a consolation and a comfort to us, to assure us that God is the one who came after us. He chose us by name individually, and he has done all he needs to do to make us his own. And so these are meant to be words of comfort. We have to remember that Paul is writing to a specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time. This was a church in the city of Ephesus. It's now far western Turkey. This is a group of people that had been gathered together in the first century. And Paul had a message that he wanted to get to them. And first he wanted to ground them in their identity. Well, this is still the same thing that God is doing today. We are a collected gathering of people in this place at IAC. And God has something that he wants to get through to us before anything else can get to that. We can get to any other topic. He wants to make sure we're established in our identity. You are a chosen person. God has secured you, and you are secure in him. We are a chosen people as a church, and his church is secure in Christ. This is Paul's intended tone for the church of Ephesus, and it is for us as well. In verse 13, we see our side of this relationship. Paul talks in term about how we've been included in Christ. How did that happen? Well, we heard the message of the truth, we heard the gospel, and we responded to that gospel. What do we have to do to get in good with God? It's quite simple. We say yes. He is extending to us his desire for us to be his own, to adopt us as his children. But he doesn't force himself upon us. We can say yes or we can say no. When we say yes, it is done. Immediately it's done. And it sets in a whole train of events that happen immediately within us, whether we feel it or sense it or not. Verse 14 talks about how we are marked with a seal that is the Holy Spirit. This is a legal term. It's like, it's like akin to a, 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 a king who writes a letter and puts a splotch of ink, or excuse me, wax on that envelope and then stamps it with his, his ring. There's a mark on there to prove authenticity. It's like signing one's name to a contract. It's similar to, to putting a, authentic, a seal of authenticity on a piece of artwork. God says, this person is mine and I have marked them. And that seal cannot be removed. It's like parents who adopt a child. They have to sign documents. They have to fill out legal forms. But once that's done, that child belongs in that family. And so it is true for us. Further, Paul goes on to write that the Holy Spirit has been sent to us. He now indwells us. And the Holy Spirit, amongst many other things, serves as a down payment for the full eternity, for all the goodness of eternity that's going to come. It's like putting good faith money down on buying a house. You're telling the owner, I intend to pay you in full for this house, and so here's a couple thousand bucks to assure you that I am in on this contract. It's like going to a a party. You can smell the food in the other room, and the cook comes out and he gives you a, a taste of the main dish. That's not the feast. There's still a feast to come. The Holy Spirit is a taste, a foretaste of heaven. What God is saying is, I have made you mine. I have marked you with a seal to prove it. I now indwell you as an individual, and I indwell you as a gathered group of people as his church. I have made you my daughter. I have made you my son. You are the bride of my son, Christ. 
One day we will meet face to face and you will get it all in full. Now what in the world did we do to deserve to be adopted by the eternal father, to be legally called his child, such as that we are recipients of his full inheritance that he extends to all his legal family? What do we do to deserve that? We say yes. We receive it. And it is done. God has done all that is needed to secure you. And like John 10 said that we read earlier, nobody can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Nothing can take you out of the grip of Jesus Christ. It is a done deal. So, first things first. Our position is secured by the Father. We say yes to him and we are now his child. We belong to him. Then we begin to grow into acting that way, acting about like whose we are. The entire book of Ephesians is set up this way. The first three chapters is all about what God has done on our behalf. He's broken down barriers. He's brought people who are at odds with each other together into one body. And then the second half of the book talks about how, because of this reality, we now live. But first things first. Our position impacts our practice. But does our practice impact our relationship with God? What happens if we're really in a rough patch? Don't my actions have any impact at all? Let me share a little bit of my journey of, of late. Beth and I have experienced a pretty significant loss in our family this year. We didn't see it coming, and it's caught us and our adult children uh, quite by surprise. It's been a, a heavy season for us, and I've been really proud of how our family has walked through that. But nonetheless, it's been a a significant loss. It's just kind of, our family's just kind of walking through right now. In July last month, Beth and I had some vacation time. You may have seen me walk, wandering around here for a couple week, weekends outside of my uniform. I was on vacation. About halfway through that time, I began to notice this anger welling up within me. I had no idea what it was about at first. But it's just this quiet, bubbling rage inside of me and my anger begets anger because I get angry that I'm angry. What in the world do I have to be angry about? I mean, life's good. I'm on vacation. The weather in Colorado has been awesome. Why am I angry? And yet there it was. I was bugging the heck out of me. I think it was more internal than external and yet I had to apologize to Beth a number of times. I know things came out more intense than I meant to. I wasn't yelling at her. I was just edgy. It was driving me nuts. I wasn't praying well either. Because, you know, we only have one way we know how to relate. And I was relating this way a certain way, and it was impacting how I was relating this way too. So how was God seeing me in that time when I'm in my mess? Do I run a risk of falling out of favor with him? Is he just drumming his fingers? rolling his eyes, waiting for me to get my stuff back together again so we can pick up the relationship? What is his posture towards us when we're struggling? After a couple of days, I sat down with Beth, and I just said, I, just, I need a listening ear here. I've got all this anger going on inside of me. I don't have any idea what it's about. We talked it through for a while, and it wasn't long before the tears came right behind it. My anger was 
a surface of all this ungrieved grief that was inside of me from the stuff that had been going on in our family this past year. But it was all coming out sideways. And so I had to ask for apology. Or I had to ask for forgiveness. I had to confess my sin. Now, you might say, well, that was your mess. You ought to see mine. Maybe you've been uh, doing things on the Internet lately you shouldn't be, getting stuck in that pornographic cycle again. Or maybe you and your spouse have just been in this endless cycle of arguing. It's like every night, here it comes again, and you just can't get on the same page. Or maybe it's with one of your kids, or the kids with you. Maybe you've blatantly lied to somebody lately just to cover your own, save your own skin. What does God do with us when we find ourselves in those places in life? Doesn't that have any impact on our position? Does God begin to pull himself back from us, waiting for us to clean up our act so that now he can come back in? God has chosen you. He has marked you with his own presence. He has secured you, and you are completely secure. Like we read from Psalm 121, he never sleeps, he never slumbers, he watches all of your coming and going, in and out, you may wander way out in left field. And he is still watching over you, he is still doggedly pursuing you. You can't undo his love for you. You cannot undo his fondness for you. He likes you. He just doesn't just dutifully seek after you. Yes, we can grieve the Holy Spirit who is within us. And yes, we can dishonor the name of Jesus. And yes, we can look for false ways and means of making our life work without trusting in God. The church does it, and we as individuals can do it. Sure, we're going to have to confess some sin. And we're going to have to own our stuff and we're going to have to apologize. And sometimes when we do certain things, there's big ramifications, like legal ramifications for our actions. None the less. You are secure in him because you have been secured in your position with the Father. And no matter how we live our life, it does, it does create a distance at times. We can grieve, but he never undoes what he has already done in your life. He has made you his own. And all it takes is a cry of his name, and he's there. God has done all he needs to be done in your life to be secure in him. In beginning this book on Ephesians, as we plow into this text, this has to be grounded for sure. Where is your identity? Where is your sense of security? God has named you. He has called you his own. And you can rest in that. And so if things are going well in your life, you're at peace with God, then rejoice. Be at peace. But if you are struggling and you know that you've gotten off track, Right now, this moment, that can all be reestablished. He has made you his son. He has made you his daughter. And he's immediately there to tend you. All you have to do is to cry out to him, come to others for help, and it's done. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, I thank you for this immense goodness. I thank you that even a couple weeks ago when I was in my mess and I was struggling so much, you were right there compassionately tending to my heart. I have may not have been drawn near to you, but I know you were drawn near to me. And I thank you that you do that for each one of us. You do it for your church, and you do it for each one of us. I pray, Father, that you would do the gracious and kind work of securing us in you so our identity is firm in whose we are, knowing that you will always come and get us wherever we find ourselves. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.